And let's read again uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority to do what is good? And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So some time ago, uh, Crystal and I were riding down the road talking and she made this statement. She said, whenever a lady is about to get married... Someone should care for her enough to take her aside and ask her this question. If your soon-to-be husband never changes and is exactly the man he is today for the rest of his life, are you willing to submit to him? Are you willing to let him be the head of your household and to submit to his leadership as he is right now? And if she cannot heartily say yes to that, they should call the wedding off immediately. And I thought that was wise because it seems like every day we see folks enduring rocky marriages because the biblical model for marriage is not being followed. And all around us we see the hardship and heartache and brokenness that can res result when husbands refuse to lead or when wives refuse to follow. But let's be honest. Submission can be very hard. Our flesh does not like to submit. Our flesh wants to use the people around us to serve ourselves. And submission requires self-denial. And yet, what we have in this command is a command to submission. Now, we're talking about the Christian's relationship to government. And the central command right there at the very beginning of the passage is let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We started this morning asking five questions. Who? And we've seen the answer to that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So everybody, including you, including me. And we've already seen the what. What is this submission to civil Government. Well, we saw that according to Scripture, that submission begins inwardly with an inward desire to honor those who are in authority over us, an inward desire to sincerely show respect to them. And then submission shows itself outwardly in honoring speech and obedient actions. 
Submission does not grumble. Submission does not complain. It respects those in authority, or at the very least, respects the office that God has given to them. And submission does not resist authority. And then we move to the third question. Why? Why should we be subject to the governing authorities? And Paul gave us two main reasons, and we're looking at the first one. That we should submit to governing authorities, verse 5, to avoid the wrath of God. Uh, He actually gives this idea earlier, explicitly in verse 2, when he says that resisting authority incurs judgment. And we're trying to understand, why is this so? Why is it that when a Christian or any person resists civil authorities, that arouses the wrath of God? Why does it incur judgment? Why is it, is it evil to resist civil authorities? And we saw that Paul gives us several reasons. First, there is no authority except from God. Second, those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. That's verse 1. So there, any person that's in any authoritative role is there by God's design. And now this evening we see a third reason that Paul gives us why resisting civil authorities arouses God's wrath. And it's this. Governing authorities are God's avengers. Governing authorities are God's avengers. Now the avengers are pretty popular right now, aren't they? Coming in late April, May Some of it all, all these Avengers movies, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the Hulk, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, he's my favorite, Hawkeye. Um, These are the folks that often come into our minds when we think about the Avengers. And what do these superheroes do? They fight bad guys. They bring to justice those who are too powerful to be captured and judged by the nations of regular people. Without the Avengers, these super powerful villains would wreak havoc on the world and no one would be able to stop them. So the Avengers step in to defend the earth against these evil powers and to bring them to justice. And that is actually not far off from exactly what Paul is teaching here about the role of government. He says in verse 4 that governing authorities, civil authorities, are an Avenger. And he's saying that the officials have been delegated by God the duty of bringing judgment on evildoers. Governing authorities protect the people they serve by declaring and carrying out due punishments on those who do wrong. Civil governments are instruments of God's justice in this world. It is very important to see that there is truly a distinction between the way everyday people treat one another and the special authority given to people in their offices of civil governance. So think about how Jesus taught people to treat one another in their everyday lives. You are to love your enemy. You're to pray for those who persecute you. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, you're to turn to him the other also. 
If someone steals your tunic, you're to let them have your cloak as well. If a Roman soldier comes to you and demands that you carry his burden and take it one mile, you should offer to take his burden two miles. Those are the principles Jesus gave us for how we're to interact with people in our daily lives. But do you see the problem that there would be if there were no governments? The wicked would run all over the righteous. The violent and the deceptive and the thieves would run amok and run this world. And so God has established civil government so that there is an authority in this world that brings a measure of his judgment and his justice to bear on evildoers in this life. If someone comes into my house and steals almost all that I own, I still do not have the God-given authority to forcibly take that person and lock them away in some building that I own and prevent them from leaving. But a judge has that authority. Uh, Even if it was a judge's house that was robbed, the judge as a person, the judge as a citizen does not have the authority to take retaliation against that person. Instead, his case would have to be brought before another judge, an impartial judge. And that judge and his civil authority would have the authority to issue judgment. Romans 12 tells us, don't repay evil for evil. Never seek to avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. But now we see that one way God's wrath against sin is executed is is this. In this life, even before the day of judgment... God has given civil authorities a special authorization to avenge wrongdoing. So this is the role of civil authorities, to punish evil. Do you see that Paul says that governments bear the sword? Do you see this? Verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. God has not given a sword to you and me as regular citizens. We are called to show compassion and mercy even to our enemies. But when a person, even a Christian person, fills the proper office and is acting in the capacity of that civil office, then it becomes his or her obligation to make sure that justice is done. Now, we won't go there this evening, but I will just point out that the picture Paul uses here is one of bearing the sword... Not bearing the keys to the jail cell. It is certainly right for governments to use prisons and jails as a punishment when it best fits the crime. But I think it could be well argued that in our country, prisons and jails are being used for punishment when it does not fit the crime at all. And too often, crimes deserving of the sword are not being dealt with as they ought. We are a nation that takes sin too lightly. Capital punishment was authorized by God for civil governments all the way back in Genesis 9. And Paul says that these governing authorities are to be a terror to bad conduct. In other words, the sentences that these civil authorities are to hand down are to be the kind of sentences that it it scares people straight. People don't want to do wrong things because they're scared of the punishment they will receive. It's not going to be a slap on the wrist. It's not going to be your third DUI and you still get to go home. 
right? It's not going to be that way. If punishments are not swift enough or severe enough to bring terror even into the hearts of the most wicked and hard-hearted, then government is failing in its role. Government's central role is to be a gift of God's grace in this world to restrain sin, to keep wickedness in check. Uh, Paul describes the governing authority as God's servant for your good. Does everybody see that in our passage? Beginning of verse 4, he, the civil ruler, God's servant for your good. That word servant is the word deacon. It's the word deacon. Literally, just as we have deacons in our church who serve the body and assist pastors in church matters, so God has deacons who serve him. God rules over this world and civil governments are his deacons who help him carry about this work of justice in the world. As one writer has said, the ruler is thus an appointed, delegated, and deputized servant. The ruler doesn't just serve. The ruler serves with God's authority behind him for as long as God allows. There is a sense in which the civil leaders of this world are like Barney Fife. They are God's deputy. And they fumble around. And they mess up quite a bit. But at the end of the day, they still serve a good purpose. In recent years... Those who believe we would be better off without governing authorities have been organizing themselves and even marching in streets and certainly using the internet to promote their agenda. And these people are called anarchists. Anarchists. They believe that the best society is one in which there is no hierarchy at all. There are no civil offices in which one person has authority over another. Instead, they say the society is self-governed by all the people through voluntary institutions and associations. I hope this is obvious to you, but Bible-believing Christians cannot rightly be anarchists. Um. I hear Christians complain about the government. Sometimes I complain about the government. Okay, um, I've definitely done my fair share. But our default attitude and posture should be one of gratitude for civil authorities. We must see government in and of itself as an objective good. We must cherish government as a gift from the Father above. Jeff Thomas says this. He says, It is better to have a really hardline, tyrannical authority than anarchy. We may disagree, we may vote against certain persons, we may picket and write letters, but we may never join the anarchists and cry, Down with all government. Bad government is still better than no government at all. It is still better than everyone doing what is good in their own eyes. Lynch law, vigilante rule. Moreover, Christians especially benefit from the gift of civil authorities. In other words, of all the people in the world, 
We Christians especially benefit from civil government. Why? Um, this was, I thought, a great insight. This is by Robert Haldane. He wrote in the early 1800s what I think is one of the best commentaries on Romans ever written. It's almost devotional literature. Like you open it up and you're reading his comments on each verse. But with each one, he's, oh, it's just so good. Anyway, so this is something that he said in his commentary. None are so much indebted to civil government as Christians, to each of whom it may indeed be emphatically said, government is a servant for your good. Because were the restraints of government removed, Christians would be attacked, persecuted or destroyed in any country. Even the persecution of the worst government would not be so bad as the persecution of the world if freed from the restraint of law. Notwithstanding the numerous persecutions endured by Christians under the Roman emperors, they were still to them the ministers of God for good, without whose government they would probably have been exterminated. The Christians to the lions was the common cry of the multitude among the pagans. The Roman government afforded protection to Paul for a long period and saved him on different occasions from suffering death by his own countrymen. Let Christians then in every country, instead of joining with the enemies of its established order, be thankful for the divine ordinance of civil government and exert themselves to maintain obedience and peace. Do you understand what he's saying? That if the world of unbelievers were unchecked and unrestrained by civil authorities, the hostility that natural man has towards God would be aired out and lashed out on God's people. That we, above all, would be the most persecuted, oppressed, and abused people in the world were it not for the restraints of civil government and the effect that it's had on the history of mankind. And it is interesting in the book of Acts how often that it's the, the Roman authorities that save Paul's life from the people. Government can feel like a nuisance when you want to drive a lot faster than the speed limit. It can. Or when you're having to take off your shoes and your belt and throw away that bottle of Coke that you didn't get to drink before getting on your airplane and now you've got to go through the TSA. Or when you see your pay stub and you realize how much of your paycheck isn't going into your pocket. Right? But even in the face of these things, we are to be grateful for the gift of government. Now, admittedly, Paul makes a statement in verse 3 that often leaves Christians scratching their heads. Okay, Verse 3, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. In other words, Paul seems to be saying that as long as we're doing good, we have nothing to fear from those in authority. As long as you're doing good, you will be government approved. But really? I mean, how, how can Paul even make that statement? How can Paul who was time after time imprisoned by authorities for preaching the gospel, beaten with rods and stoned with stones for preaching the gospel, how can he claim we have nothing to fear from civil governments when we're doing good? 
Preaching the gospel is good. And Paul did that, and it left scars on his back, thanks to civil authorities. So how can Paul say, do good and you'll have nothing to fear from civil authorities? And that is one of the main questions that people often have to wrestle with in thinking through this passage. I'm going to give you four observations that I think are helpful in general. Four observations to help us make sense of this. Number one, Paul seems to be laying down a general principle. He is not addressing the special cases. He's talking about the general welfare of most people under most governments in most times. And frankly, it's almost as if he'd been reading Proverbs before he writes this. Uh, The book of Proverbs, this is how it works. It, It gives general principles that are not true in every single specific circumstance, but are generally true in most circumstances for most people. The book of Proverbs is words of wisdom from a father to a son about what he's seen, what he's learned, what he's observed about how life normally works. And so the classic example, and we've gone over this many times before, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That does not mean you cannot find an example of a child who was raised in a Christian home, taught true faith and morality, was loved by his or her parents, who was prayed for diligently, disciplined faithfully, and yet still didn't leave the home and embrace wickedness and immorality and rank unbelief. There are those cases. There are those cases. But those are unusual cases. You will find many, many more examples of children who were raised in those same circumstances who did believe. And who continue to trust Christ as adults, follow Christ as adults, and pursue mature godly living. So the exceptions don't overthrow the general rule. So what does the book of Proverbs say about rulers? Exactly what Paul says in here in verse 3. That they bless the righteous and they bring judgment on the wicked. Proverbs 16, 13, righteous lips are the delight of a king. He loves him who speaks what is right. Proverbs 20, verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Proverbs 22, 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as a friend. Many of the Proverbs actually talk about how kings are particularly a terror to those who do evil. Proverbs 14.35, a servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath will fall on the one who acts shamefully. Proverbs 19.12, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like the dew on grass. Growling lion. What is that meant to tell you? It's one thing to to come up across a lion. Hopefully that's never happened to you, but imagine, right? You get home tonight, and as you're walking up to your your door, there's a lion. Okay? That's pretty scary. Now the lion growls. What does that tell you? It tells you you're in trouble. Okay? That's the idea, right? That that a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion. Proverbs 20, verse 2. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Same idea, different verse. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. 
So over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and especially the book of Proverbs, which, by the way, Paul just quoted from Proverbs twice in the last chapter, so I do think Proverbs is in the back of Paul's mind here. All over the book of Proverbs, Paul, we have this idea of kings in general reward the righteous and bring judgment on the wicked. And I think Paul is doing the same thing here. He's just laying down a general principle. If you do good, there's nothing to fear from civil authorities. Second observation. It is sin to have a rebellious spirit against governing authorities. It is not sin to be persecuted unjustly. In other words, while we can get all caught up in the exceptions of governments who use their powers to to abuse people, while we can talk about bad rulers, that just doesn't seem to be as big a deal to Paul as it seems to be to us. Paul knew all about wicked governors. Paul knew all about civil rulers who did terrible things. Paul knew what it was to be unjustly punished by governing authorities. But he recognized that God often does good through that persecution. Christians unrighteously rebelling against government, that's sin. Paul is less worried about keeping us from persecution and more worried about keeping us from sin. You see the difference? He is less concerned to tell us about the exceptions and the special cases so that we can avoid persecution. He wants to tell us, don't sin. John Piper says this. Paul risked being misunderstood on the side of submission because he saw pride as a greater danger to Christians than government injustice. What's the greater danger in your life? You being mistreated by the government or pride? Clear answer, pride. I cannot imagine Paul writing these words in chapter 13 If the apostle thought that the ultimate goal in life was everyone being treated fairly by the government. But I can't imagine him insisting on submission to the governing authorities if the most important duty was trusting in Jesus Christ, growing in humility and self-denial and being ready to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Being persecuted unjustly is not the reason why anyone goes to hell. Being arrogant and self-righteous and self-indulgent is why most people go to hell. Jesus never promised his people a fair fight. He promised them the opposite. If they treated the master of the house as a devil, how much worse would they treat you who are mere servants in that house? The main issue before the church is not one of being treated justly in the world by civil authorities. The main issue is whether or not we trust Christ and are willing to deny ourselves for the glory of Christ, the service of others. So... We've seen two reasons already why Paul doesn't seem to to care about the fact that there are some authorities who don't always uh, terrorize those who would do wicked and reward those who do good. There's a third reason, and I think this one may be even closest to the mark. I think it is very likely that Paul expects this letter to be read by some of the governing authorities in Rome. In other words, when Paul writes this letter... In this part, I don't think he's just thinking about the Christians in the church who are going to read it. I think he also has the expectation there are going to be some civil authorities in Rome who are going to read this. And the gospel itself is controversial enough, Romans 1 through 11. 
The message that Jesus is Lord, uh, the teaching that no power, even the, the emperor, has the authority that he has without God's will, all that's controversial enough. Paul is writing these verses in part to help government leaders understand their place in God's plan. To help them understand that Christians are not an inherently rebellious people. He is emphasizing submission because he wants rulers to see that this is the default position of Christians. And I think he was trying to say something to those rulers about what they're to do. Why do I think Paul expected this letter to come into the hands of government leaders? Well, for one thing, Christianity was already beginning to cause a stir in various cities across the empire. We read in Acts of riots that were breaking out because of Christianity. We read of city leaders getting drawn in because their economics depended on the sale of idols. And Christians, well, they don't worship idols. We know that Nero is in power when Paul writes this. And in just a few years, he's going to blame the fire of Rome on the followers of Crestus, almost certainly Christ. And because of that, you'll have the first major wave of persecution. And both Paul and Peter are going to die for their faith under Nero's authority. It makes sense that Roman authorities are going to begin to notice these Christians, pay attention to these Christians, and part of that means they might want to learn something about what they believe. Well, remember, the book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus. The book of Romans is far longer than any of Paul's other letters because he is laying out in this letter a fuller picture of Christian belief and Christian practice than anywhere else we find in the New Testament. And he is sending this magnum opus to the church in Rome, where all roads lead and where all roads depart. (laughs) This letter is intended to have a wide readership from the very beginning. It would make sense that this letter would be a natural document from which the Roman authorities would seek to understand what Christians believe. And then a few years after this letter is written, we do find Paul in Rome. And he's under house arrest. Roman guards are keeping him company each day. He cannot leave. Paul is waiting to see what the Roman government is going to do to him. And from house arrest, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi. And at the end of the letter, he says this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Which seems to mean... I don't think Caesar's household means Caesar's family. I think it means people working in Caesar's government. I think it means that there were Christians in the Roman church who held positions of power in Caesar's government. And so for all these reasons, I think Paul expected his letter to be read by people in power. And it most certainly was, by the way, in the years following And he wanted to show that this was God's main command to Christians. Be thankful for government. Submit to government. If you do good, Christian, you have nothing to fear from government. Hear that, Mr. Roman governor reading this letter? Hear that, Mr. Roman prefect reading this letter? Hear this Roman emperor reading this letter? If we do good, we should have nothing to fear. What was going to be the problem for Christians for centuries to come? They were doing good and they still had reason to fear. 
This was a way that Paul was saying to those emperors, to those rulers, to those governors, this is not how it ought to be. We are seeking to submit. We are seeking to do good. We ought not to have anything to fear from you. Don't punish people for doing good. Punish people for doing evil. And then finally, a fourth observation. Even when Christians are not government approved, even when governments are persecuting Christians for doing good, we still ultimately have nothing to fear. Because what is the worst that a government can do to you? They can torture you. Government can take your life. Paul already talked about this in Romans 8. He said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, guess what? It was often the governments doing the killing. It was often the local authorities who were treating Christians as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mount Hermon, any unjust suffering that you experience at the hands of government or anyone else in this life will be made right by God at the end. The sufferings of this life will not compare to the glory to be revealed to you. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. When the apostles were beaten by the authorities in Jerusalem, we're told they left the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So if governments do pass unjust laws, if governments do make your life difficult, if governments do persecute you because of your faith, God will take care of that on the last day. Those governing authorities are still human beings who will have to answer before God for how they use the authority entrusted to them. You leave that to God. And as for you, you submit. Submit to the governing authorities in your life. Why? To avoid the wrath of God. No authority exists except for Him. Those that exist are instituted by Him. And governing authority exists as avengers for our good. Now, of course, every civil authority is in this life is an imperfect shadow of the King of Kings. You will not be able to heartily, gladly, thankfully submit to government... Unless you're trusting in the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The more that you know that you are safe in the arms of Christ, the more you will be able to submit even to the most unjust governmental laws or regulations. And the more that you see that governments are merely carrying out the sovereign plan of God for your good and that Jesus is in charge of it all and that he will turn all things, even the evil things, to good the more you will have peace in this life. 
So maybe one application is, Mount Hermon, let us put away all our griping about the government. When we have a legitimate concern, let us handle it in a legitimate, God-honoring way. And certainly let us not put our ultimate faith in any earthly power. But let us put our faith in the Son of God. Amen? Amen. All right, so today we spent the whole day just looking at verses 1 through 4 and this command to submit. Any questions that you want to ask about what we've seen today?